You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, it's a kind of a little bit of a deflated feeling as we all got up this morning after the weekend, after the rugby. We had such high hopes on uh, Friday and I think little Johnny Sexton's son, Luca, with tears in his eyes, I think, summed up the feelings of a nation when he was out on the pitch uh, with his dad and the way he was staring up at his his father who is just an out and out legend and he, his dad Johnny was you know visibly upset as was his little boy Luca and he just had one message for him you're still the best uh, dad and I think he summed up the feeling of the nation and if we were all standing in front of Johnny Sexton that's what we would have had to that's what we would have wanted to have said uh, to him and then you know after the match Johnny, you know, straight away, uh, full of compliments for all of his teammates and saying, you know, I'm very proud of the boys. I'm proud of the nation and I'm proud of our country. And he, he highlighted that the fine margin between victory and defeat, he says, you have to work hard for fairy tale endings. And he said, we didn't get it, but he said uh, tonight. And that's that is just uh, a life. And, you know, we came within touching distance of making history and I think because of that the loss on Saturday night I think hurts much more than all of the others you know we were on top of the world uh, we've some of the best players that have ever put on a green jersey and run out onto a rugby uh, pitch so we can be just all extremely proud of this team and what this team has achieved over the last four years but you know you've got to feel for can we we call them the elder lemons of the uh, team. We have, you know, there's a group of them who are, you know, the older lads on the team. And of course, for, uh, for, for, for many of them, that was going to be their last match. We know for Johnny Sexton. He was retiring after that match. But, you know, Peter Romani is admitting that he's now considering uh, retirement uh, as well. So, you know, there is this group of guys who won't play for Ireland uh, again. And these are a group of players who have had an incredible impact on Irish rugby, you know, not just over the last few years, but over the last decade. So it was kind of like a feeling it was an end of an era uh, for some of them as well. But in particular for our retiring captain, uh, Johnny Sexton, I was looking at him one of the papers uh, today just had kind of some of the stats about Johnny Sexton uh, leading Six Nations points scorer of all time Ireland leading Ireland's point scorer of all time he's fourth on the all-time test rugby list and of course he was a world uh, player of the year a winner and when Johnny Sexton made his international de- debut at that stage, Ireland had only won two Grand Slams and that was over the previous 100 years. They doubled that total under his uh, watch. Ireland became the world number one for the first time and only the third country to maintain that status for over a year. And he drove Ireland, of course, to the first ever win over New Zealand and the first ever series win in New Zealand. Uh, Leinster, three European Cups in four years and the Lions uh, to a first series win in 12 years. So he's he's got a remarkable um, uh, record that he will always be remembered for. You're kind, of, you're kind of looking at him now and we're already starting to uh, miss him. But I think 
what this team has done is they've given the country such a lift over the last few years, but certainly over the last uh, few months. You know, we dared to dream. It wasn't to be, but we each and every one of us can be extremely proud of that uh, team and our hearts, I think, broke for them uh, more than anything. 0818103103 and Michael um, who regularly texts us and I know he's a great rugby supporter so I was expecting a, a WhatsApp in and he hasn't failed me. Michael says, congratulations to an outstanding Irish rugby team for some outstanding performances over the past four years, including Saturday night's quarter final. They went down bravely for little things, no thanks to Wayne Barnes as they fought a titanic battle. The Irish team are a team that each and every one of us are extremely proud of all throughout this World Cup tournament. The camaraderie that they showed was a pleasure to have in any team and that was from the top down. The bond between Andy Farrell and his team was always above 100%. Their achievements were something special in every match they played and each and every player played to their uh, their maximum. Nobody can take it from them. They are the best. Congratulations to them all in the way they respected themselves on behalf of our country in the eyes of the world. Thank you, Leon. That's Michael in Castletown Bear. Thank you for that. Your thoughts uh, welcomed because I take it a huge level of uh, disappointment this morning. But, you know, our day will come again for sure. I only discovered at the weekend of the very, very sad passing of uh, Isabel Terry, Isabel Terry Byrne, to give her her full name, uh, a Cork lady who I'd spoken with um, a couple of times on the programme. She had bravely battled a long illness and she campaigned for people to uh, donate organs. She was actually born with a defect of the pulmonary valve in her heart. Now that left her on bottled oxygen uh, for 24 years but then she finally got the gift of life when she had, uh, if my memory serves me right, it was a double lung and heart transplant back in 2017. I remember talking with her when she was on the transplant list and then I remember talking with her following the the transplant and life was just so good for uh, Isabel and sadly she passed away on last uh, Thursday from health issues um, uh, associated with the pulmonary condition that she had. Such very, very sad news and her funeral was at the weekend. So I just want to extend my deepest, deepest sympathies to her wonderful husband, Philip, who she spoke about. She, she, They only recently married, I'm sure, but he was her partner and was beside her all the way. A fantastic man. Her mother, Deirdre, and her siblings, Julie, Bill, Robert, Peter and Stephanie and her extended family and uh, friends uh, may she rest in peace but she was such a great advocate for people to donate or, or organs so it's something everybody can do in Isabel's memory is to make sure that you're on you, you, you're you on the donor list and that you've spoken to your family members about it that is so uh, important and also today very much thinking of Tina Satchwell's uh, family as we've been reporting on the news uh, today uh, it's expected hundreds are going to turn 
turn out um, along with her family, her friends and her neighbours. There's a special vigil has been uh, organised for her hometown of Yall. It's in Formoy Town Park at uh, six o'clock. It's been organised by the Formoy community and it's in particular to show support for the devastated Dingivan family, for Tina's uh, family to honour her memory and obviously to offer solidarity for the, for the family of other missing uh, people and various um, church community and cultural groups in Formoy are supporting the vigil and, ex- and expected to uh, attend. And of course, there was another vigil held at the weekend in Yall where Tina had uh, lived and that was organised just two days after Tina's body was found in the house where she had lived in in uh, Yall and um, there was a very respectful number of people that turned out and a a deep sense of sadness still uh, within the community of Yall as well and of course as we know at the weekend uh, her husband of 26 years Richard Satchel uh, was charged at uh, Cashel District Court on uh, Saturday with her murder but very much thinking of her family uh, today and if you're in and around the Fomoy area you might like to go along to that special vigil tonight Fomoy Town Park at 6pm. Kathleen in Mill Street said there was so much hype about the rugby match at the weekend maybe we oversold ourselves says Kathleen but if people could turn all that hype and energy into the health service or into our housing situation or looking after carers and the many other situations in this country maybe if we could bottle that tap into it would it not be good for uh, Ireland and maybe it would uh, Kathleen how you would tap into it though I don't know I'm interested in your thoughts and comments by the way because um, I'll be looking in a little while on what the Garda Representative Association are making of this John was on to us and he's unsure about the announcement that was made last week that they are thinking of increasing the age of Angarda Shia for recruits to join the Gardaí. They're thinking of uh, upping it to 50. It's a 35 at the moment. It's only 35 and under can apply to be members of Angarda Shia but they're talking about because they've got a recruitment crisis of upping that age limit to uh, 50. Uh, John feels having Gardaí in their late 50s and into their 60s, would they be run, able to run after an 18-year-old? Will that work? Now, I'm sure people in their late 50s and early 60s who are very fit and healthy John would have something to say against that but I know that the members of Angarda Siakona themselves are a little bit baffled by this suggestion that recruits up to the age of 50 would be allowed in. Um, I'll take a look at the the comments that have come out over the weekend from the Garda Representative Association but I I give it out now to see what others. Uh, Is is Minister Helen McEntee is she right in, in we need to do something? We are, we're losing Gardaí in that we've got a retention issue, but we're also failing to uh, recruit enough. Enough people just are not interested in becoming members of Gardaí Giacona. It's a tough, tough job, I'll tell you that. But do you think by raising the age to 50, is that a good move? Is it a bad move? Would people come with life skills? Would they make better members of Gardaí Giacona if they go in there older, having had another career? Your thoughts welcomed 0818 103. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862-103-103. And I've just spotted a text in from uh, Denny to say they have a problem with no water in the Liscarroll Sally Park area. I'm wondering if we've been notified by Ishka Air and Irish Water. I'll get uh, John Paul to find out what's going on there. I haven't, I can't see any notification at the moment in from them, but we'll try and find out what's going on with a water outage in Liscarroll and uh, Sally Park areas. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie.
Cork Today on C103. The government is being urged to intervene in a pay dispute involving thousands of health and social care workers who have threatened to take indefinite strike action from tomorrow. To explain the background and why these workers feel they've no other choice but to go out on strike, I'm joined by Niall Shanahan of uh, Forza Trade Union. Good morning to you, Niall. Good morning, Patricia. And, and you're welcome. Um, now, I have to say, and I have to declare, uh, and listeners will know anyway, uh, that I have a vested interest in this and that I have a deafblind daughter who attends St. Joseph's Foundation, so her uh, day centre is due to close uh, tomorrow. But I went through all of the papers yep. this morning, uh, Niall, and bar one piece that I found by Emmett Malone in the Irish Times, there's very little coverage in the papers about this strike action and the effect that it is going to have on people. Yeah, I mean, there there has been, uh, I suppose, relatively little in the way of national coverage uh, over the last three weeks since we served notice. But obviously, I would expect that to change. Uh, this week. I think to, to, to give them their due, the Irish Examiner have been very good in particular uh, on their coverage uh, of this issue. Um, and I suppose in the normal course of events as well, the period of time between uh, when we served notice of an industrial action and the requirement here because they were health services was that it would be three weeks. But the period of time during which we serve notice and strike action commences can, you know, in terms of the, 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 the level and depth of media coverage that we receive can vary. So obviously, I'm very grateful to you for, for airing well, well, uh, this well, particular it's, it's, issue uh, this morning. But in, you know? but in that month since the, you know, the initial strike action uh, was announced, how much negotiation, because I remember when it was announced, I was saying, all right, look, they've got about four weeks, they'll get this sorted. Like, yeah. How much negotiations went on in that period? Uh, I can tell you that none, none have taken place during that period. Um, We've had no contact from any uh, government departments. We've had no contact from the HSE or the Department of Health uh, or the Department of Public Expenditure Reform. And they'd be the main departments or agencies uh, dealing with this particular issue. I think the budget for the government uh, was a bigger priority. And, and I think what's really surprising as we move into this week of strike is that the um, the health budget is what was allocated to health uh, this year actually constitutes a reduction and the allocation for disabilities has not been improved. So there's nothing in the budget to indicate that there's a political will to solve this particular dispute either. So we are now facing a situation where the action of last resort and indefinite strike action certainly is the uh, action of last resort by very by by the very nature of it. Uh, but our members now in 17 different employments nationwide and in a number of very particular ones, you mentioned St. Joseph's Foundation in Cork, also in Able Ireland and Cove Hospital in Cork. Uh, we'll have members going out strike in both of those locations. But it looks like that action will go ahead. Um, the nature of the strike action is that it's indefinite, so we don't know when it will conclude. And we have no indication as yet if there is going to be any form of negotiation. Now, I, I would imagine that as we as you know, if, if we're out on strike for a number of consecutive days, that it's likely to be some intervention at that point. But I don't know when that will be and I don't know what the nature of that intervention will be. Possibly an invitation from the Workplace Relations Commission. But as it stands, 
no talks have taken place and none are scheduled at the moment. Well, so I'm, we I'm are just, proceeding I'm with our plans for industrial action. I'm, I'm absolutely gobsmacked uh, by that. Now, the workers are looking for pay parity with public sector workers who do almost the identical jobs uh, that they do. So I suppose, can you explain t- uh, for our listeners, uh, Niall, how the pay gap came about? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the it, 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 it has its roots, like an awful lot of the problems we have today, including housing. It has its roots in the economic crash in 2009. And what happened, what used to happen prior to 2009 is that in any public service pay deal, um, these workers in the community and voluntary sector, where they're delivering health services through uh, agencies that are funded by the HSE and the Department of Health, their pay was linked to that of public service workers. So when you had a a public service-wide pay deal or a social partnership agreement, whatever pay measures were included in that for public service workers also applied to this tranche of workers in the community and voluntary sector. And what happened in 2009 is that that link was broken. Uh, the 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 amount of grant uh, payment from the HSE or the Department of Health to each agency was reduced and they were instructed to cut pay in order to affect uh, cost savings, but to continue to deliver the same level of service. So these workers had their pay cut in 2009. And then the first post-crisis pay deal that restored public sector pay was in 2015, the Lansdowne Road Agreement. When those negotiations took place, those workers in the community and voluntary sector continued to be left behind. No funds were allocated to apply the same pay restoration measures in that sector. And so they've been more or less adrift since 2015. There was some partial pay restoration in 2019, but nothing since then. So the net result after 14 years is that the minimum uh, pay disparity between these workers and their and their opposite numbers in the HSE, uh, where they're due, where they're in the same grade of work. We're talking about health and social care professionals. So that's physios and occupational therapists and other grades like that. They're the same grade doing the exact same work, often on community disability network teams. Uh, but their pay is at least 10% lower. And in some cases, according to the wheel, the advocacy body for the employer groups, they're saying the pay differential can be as much as 20%. Now, where that presents a problem is that these agencies are really struggling to hold on to the experienced staff that they have. Our research shows that the daily or sorry, the annual turnover of staff sees about 30 percent of the staff walking out the door to go and take better paid work elsewhere. So that's adding to recruitment costs for these agencies, for the likes of Enable and St. Joseph's Foundation in Cork. Um, It's adding to the recruitment costs, It's making it difficult for them to hold on to a full complement of staff. That means then that access to services becomes problematic for service users and the waiting lists grow longer. So it has this kind of self-perpetuating problem that the longer pay is adrift, the more that there's annual staff churn, the longer that the waiting lists become. And that's why we've ended up in the situation where yeah, we have now balloted for strike action, serve notice, and it looks to be going ahead. Because I know whenever we uh, discuss respite services, and certainly since the pandemic, respite services have almost uh, disappeared. But many of the organisations say, look, we'd love to be offering respite. We just can't get the staff 
uh, to, to yeah. put into into the respite centres. And your members, uh, Niall, are looking after some of the most vulnerable members of uh, society. An all-out strike, I take it, is something that they don't really want to do. It's a, It was an extremely difficult decision for them to take. And I know from speaking to individual members, uh, both this year and last year, when we had a one-day strike action at St. Joseph's Foundation, um, that like members were upset that it had come to that. They, um, for a lot of them, they've never been on strike before, so this is a first time experience. The i the idea that they wouldn't be there to perform their duties and work with their clients, um, from tomorrow is deeply upsetting for like most, if not all of them. And I spoke to one uh, member in particular last Friday who finished up her job with Enable Ireland uh, last Friday and started in a new job with a Section 38 agency today, heartbroken that she's leaving a team in Enable Ireland that she really enjoyed working with. And with with clients, she was a paediatric occupational therapist, so she worked with children. And she was just heartbroken to be leaving the job. But she had moved from Kerry to Dublin uh, to take the job and just found the cost of living in Dublin was too great when an opportunity came up to do the same job in a Section 38 funded agency where her pay terms and conditions would be better. She took that choice, but she took it with a heavy heart. And likewise, her colleagues that I've spoken to, the prospect of being out in the picket line tomorrow is something that they really feel very strongly about, but very torn about as well, because we're talking about uh, a group of workers who are absolutely focused on their clients' needs, their service user needs, where they have a strong relationship uh, with them and they don't want to break that service. But unfortunately, the situation that we're in, it's become untenable for them to continue without showing how determined they are to have this pay situation rectified. And I know you did engage with the, the WRC, last year. What, what what happened there? It, yeah, there was an engagement uh, back in July and uh, there was a pay offer made of 5% and the unions uh, took the decision at the time that, that like a 5% offer, it wasn't going to bridge the existing uh, pay gap and it wasn't going to create a process where we could continue to collectively bargain for improved pay. So that offer was rejected and the talks broke down. But what the unions understood was that they couldn't take 5% to a ballot of members because it would have been roundly rejected. And the the ballot for industrial action uh, and the decision to do that reflects the fact that, you know, that particular offer just, it, it didn't even begin to meet uh, the demands that would that would halt the hemorrhaging of staff that these agencies are currently experiencing. Okay, and just finally, when you you know, you said it yourself about the budget and the health budget, and and we're already hearing that there isn't going to be enough in the health budget to cover uh, next year. Do you still think there can be money found for this? I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we've been acutely conscious of throughout this year is just how much money the government has taken in this year, let's say, in the form of corporation tax. Now, we don't want to make too many assumptions about that particular revenue stream. We don't know uh, how long it would last. I know that, you know, things are, there are questions raised now over whether or not it will continue to, that the state will continue to earn those revenues. But we do know that at this particular point in time, the the government has never had more money on its books. 
in a situation where you have a population in need of these services, why would you why would you continue to uh, run with the a system where there's essentially a, a, a split in how services are delivered. And so if you're requiring disability services or addiction services or the services to children and services to homeless people, why would you have those services provided by a workforce who are at a constant disadvantage and whose instincts um, in order to improve their own terms and conditions is to leave the job that they're in and go and work somewhere else. And where if you're a health worker, if you can walk across to the HSE to avail of better terms and conditions, well, then why wouldn't you? But if you're funding these agencies to provide these services, why would you not fund them properly in order to make sure that that, that, that hemorrhaging of staff uh, stops. So the government has it, it, it has money in its coffers and it has a decision to make as to how these services are delivered. But the one thing we've learned over the last 14 years is that the current situation is simply unsustainable. Okay. So returning to the negotiating table is absolutely essential. And obviously the unions stand ready to do that okay. should an opportunity okay. present but itself. This, it is very much looking like that strike goes ahead tomorrow. Niall, we'll leave it there. We'll stay in contact with you in the meantime. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining thanks, us. Thanks, Patricia. Um, uh, good morning to you. That is Niall uh, Shanahan from uh, Forza. And uh, as Niall said, of the, the 17 organisations, the ones that are affected here in Corco Action in West Cork Cove Hospital, Daughters of Charity, DePaul Cork in Able Ireland, Family Resource Centres, they'll be out, um, the Irish Wheelchair Association who provide a lot of PA uh, services, Kerry Friends and uh, Parents, St Joseph's Foundation that I mentioned and uh, St Luke's uh, Nursing Home, they are some of the ones that have been affected but there is, it's an all out strike and it's an indefinite strike from tomorrow. C103. Well, just to follow on from our last interview, a listener says, carers, fire Fighters, SNAs, scoliosis, scoliosis patients still on waiting lists. All health and safety sectors seem to be constantly having to fight for better pay and conditions. Shame on this government. I think what shocks me the most was that there wasn't any negotiations going on over the weekend to try to get it sorted. Instead, we are looking at the all-out strike action tomorrow. 0818103103. Now, last week, many of our listeners were shocked by the announcement from the Association of Catholic Priests that it would be very likely that we will have priestless funerals and it could be as soon as the end of this decade to share his views. I'm joined by Father Tim uh, Hazelwood, uh, Killa Parish Priest. Good morning to you, Father Tim. Good morning, Patricia. Um, You're welcome as always. Thank you. Can you understand for very devout Catholics that they simply cannot comprehend a burial without a funeral mass? I can and that's why I think for a particular age group, the reality is the, the people who are dying are the people who are who are mass scores, who were all their lives, and that's the way things were done. And to hear this now is very upsetting. But I think because Father Roy Donovan had written that piece, and the reason that he did was just that we would have a conversation about it now rather than the shock uh, of. We have a certain way of, of doing funerals in the sense that, that uh, you'd have maybe prayers one night then. Uh, we don't have removals coming to the church anymore at Down East Cork. The prayers were in the funeral home or in the home of the person and then the body brought on the day of the funeral for the Mass. So it's one day after the other. Whereas um, 
there's so few of us and it's getting less and less and older and older we're getting. So it's, it just makes sense that priests won't be available. So it's going to be a big shock. And I think it'll be a bit like England where maybe the, if you want a funeral mass, it could be three, four, five days later when a priest would be available. It could even be weeks later. I mean, I've, I, I've attended a funeral over in England. It was two weeks. They waited yes. for a funeral for, for a funeral mass, but if the, so, if there wasn't a priest available, the alternative is what lay ministers. Yeah, that's what's happened in Cork diocese. Some of them have funeral teams, so they, they're trained and they would arrange the funeral, say the, the prayers in the funeral home. That's happening already mm. around the diocese. That some sometimes if the priest's not available, uh, some of the undertakers are doing it, and some of the. Um, Parishes have people who will say the prayers. and I, I find that very difficult because as a celebrant of a funeral mass, I, I'm lucky in that I would have a certain knowledge of the person who, who's died. And it makes it more personal. And whereas that you're turning up just to f- the function of doing the priest, we're used to, we have contact with the family. Maybe the person was sick and you'd be calling and then you'd arrange the funeral with the family so that there's a whole dynamic that goes which would be removed if it becomes this thing that priest just arrives to do a mass. Having never known the, the person or, known or, or, or the family. Uh, and I, I'm assuming, um, Father Tim, are some area, areas of the country struggling more than, say, other dioceses? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh, an interesting statistic, I, uh, I hate it's shocking people, but it's, 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 it's the facts. Like for our diocese now, we've 49 parishes. We have two students for the priesthood. And that, like, there's no guarantee, please God, that they will finish. But, but that's too far. It would probably be a 10-year period. Dublin Archdiocese, which has, it had 199 parishes and like a population of over a million and a half. They've won, they've won student for the priesthood. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, and like there's others, people like Killala Diocese, um, who else now? I've, uh, I have, I, has no student. Uh, Arden Clonmacnoise has no student for the priesthood. Um, Limerick has one. And is the Irish Catholic Church the hierarchy? Are they looking overseas for priests who might like to come here? Well, that's, we had um, a conference there last year and um, a, a divine word missionary, a man who walked abroad and has been involved in priests from other countries coming to Ireland. Uh, spoke to us about it, but a lot of, especially the African countries, are afraid to come to Ireland because they lose their faith. Their model of church, the way they are, it's different to the way it is in Ireland. And like, what are we, we're bringing them, kind of, to use them, if you know what I mean. I know, I know. But, but, but I think in the past, um, you know, many years ago, when the Irish went off on the missions and they went to other countries, I'm wondering, could something like that work? Well, it is happening. Is it, it is happening. Yeah. There are some. But, like, the reality is that the synodal process that we're involved in at the moment is on about getting lay people more involved and that there are ministries that lay people can do, can do and are doing. Like, for instance, on the islands now around Ireland, like, there's no priest living in a lot of those. It's the lay people who conduct the funerals. Yeah, it's, begun, you know? it's going on already. Yeah, It's going on and, already. And, but, but this issue, if we can't get young men, you know, to consider becoming a priest and take up a, a vocation, what do you believe now needs to happen? Well, I think 
play. Involvement is, is the first thing, you know, that people are given a rightful place. There are ministries, like we have male deacons. I think there should be, women should be. There's no other profession in, in, in the country where half the population are excluded. I think that's where we should be looking. And is, is that conversation about women priests, is it even happening behind well, those is, doors? The Synod is going on in Rome during this month of October and topics like that are included. So we'll see what comes from it. Hopefully we'll be more open. Some people don't want that, but like, what are we going to do? Deny people sacraments? Because we, we, we think it should be male only. I don't and, think I, and I assume we're not the only country who's struggling with vocations. Or are no, we? It's ha- yeah, it's happening worldwide. Absolutely. The, yeah. In the Amazon area, they had a, um, a gathering and they pleaded. But I, I, I can understand Pope Francis' position. Uh, there are some people very staunch against it. He doesn't want to split the church. So he's, it's got, things are moving slowly, trying to bring people along together. But at least now we're having a conversation. Actually, just as an aside... Um, a man who said all this kind of thing 11, 12, 13 years ago is, is silenced for 11 years now. And T.G. Cahar are having a, a, a documentary on him on Wednesday night at, at half past nine. Father Tony. Oh, Father Tony. Yeah, yeah. Great. listen, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of Father Tony uh, Flannery, who, as you say, he co-founded your um, organisation. Yeah. Uh, we've spoke with him many, many times. And I know the last time... I spoke with him was at some stage last year and it broke my heart to hear him say, because he's not allowed to say Mass uh, publicly and his sister had passed away and he looked for permission to say the Mass and they said no uh, to him and he said it's a hurt he'll take to the grave and it just now I know they ended up doing they did they did a mass in, in the in, in the sunroom yeah. in, in her house instead but it just broke my it's heart beautiful. so there's there's a it's TG Cahar are doing a program on him on Wednesday it's a Wednesday documentary, documentary. Wednesday okay. it's not Tony like myself his Irish isn't great so it, it's it's bilingual it's okay. most of it's in English yeah. but there's a little bit in Irish in it but it just tells the story like this, people don't know the facts of what happened. And the reality is that what Tony said is normal conversation. All these things we're talking about, Tony was saying it then. But, and it was a different time. So it, an injustice needs to be righted, you know. And he, he's, he still is not allowed to publicly say Mass. No. And no. he's a man getting on in years and, 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 the, and such a fantastic priest. Yeah, well, great, great mind, and you know, and uh, it's and what hurt him the most is that there was no proper process. You know, he was just given a piece of paper that's it, and no, there was no engagement, nothing, nothing. But yeah. uh, so there's lots of things that need to change in the church. Yeah, yeah, and you know, to, to, when we when we're here talking about the need for more priests, and here we have you know a very devout, fantastic priest who's who's not allowed to practice. It just it yeah it 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 absolutely defies logic. And Sean and Cove says, what did Father Tim make of the Pope suggesting he'd be open to having the Catholic Church bless same sex couples? There's a move in the right direction. Well, I think. The reality is that we as we bless lots of things, you know. What that is is blessing love. So I can't see a difficulty with it. It's and I know it's happening already. So that's um, thank God that Pope Francis has said it publicly to the be. And it's not denying the sanctity of marriage. That's what some people are are, are saying that it's taking from marriage. It's not. 
marriage is marriage is a sacrament, but God bless it. We bless houses, I bless horses. <laughs> and you can't bless two people that are in love. Uh, somebody yes. says, uh, hi Patricia, would you ask uh, Father Tim when he's talking about lay people uh, saying the prayers at funerals, uh, etc. Do they get paid? I presume they would have to get something. Do they get paid? Do you know in those lay ministers? I don't know. Because yeah. I don't know. I couldn't answer that now because, um, well, like, uh, all I know is that sacristans and stuff at funerals, you know, they're lay people who help and they would get paid. So I presume they would get paid. Yeah. I, I presume. And it could be a donation from the family, like what often that's, happens. Yeah. Well, that's the way it is with, with funerals. It's yeah. a donation. Okay. Listen, yeah. pleasure as always to talk to you, Tim. Thank you for that. Look after yourself. Thanks, Patricia. And we'll Bye-bye. talk again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is uh, Father Tim Hazelwood, uh, parish priest in Killa. Some uh, of our listeners are saying this morning, firstly, Stephen in Clonakit, who was on, very disappointed to hear this, that his mother uh, we had, a, had a hospital appointment in Cork City this morning. So the man got up bright and early already uh, to head on the bus out of Clannacilty into Cork City. Now, she was planning on getting the 9.30 bus, so she was there in plenty of time. However, the bus never arrived. She waited for a good 15 minutes. She wasn't the only one. Everybody stood around and then they realised there was no bus coming. It's the 237 bus from Goleen. Now, according to Stephen and Stephen's man, it's the first time that this has ever happened. Now, we've contacted Bus Aaron to try to find out what has happened, but that's a huge disappointment if you've got a hospital appointment and God knows, I don't know how long Stephen's mother was waiting on that appointment and hopefully it can be rescheduled and rescheduled uh, quickly for her. There's nothing worse if you've got an appointment and then there's a no-show on the bus. As I say, hopefully we'll hear back from Bus Aaron as to what happened with that no-show of the bus this morning. We've been discussing Section 39 organisations and the fact that they're going on strike tomorrow. There's about 5,000 carers, personal assistants and health professionals who are looking after the most vulnerable people in our society. There's 17 community and voluntary organisations that are going to be affected by this strike um, tomorrow. Mary in Mallow says it amazes me that the health service cannot find the money for people who seem to work the hardest but the health minister found a lot of money for the health secretary at at the time but no money for the ordinary workers. Again they always seem to look after the top tier and uh, what Mary was referencing was it came out in the doll. It, uh, it it came up I think in an Oireachtas committee meeting it was the head of the Department of Health uh, Robert Watt at the time and he uh, it actually turned out that he'd gone on a solo run. It was over the job for the well, the former chief medical officer Tony Houlihan and uh, Robert Watt at the time committed uh, 20 million euro in a public money without any oversight done and there was uproar he wasn't sanctioned for it either so yeah I know the point you're making Mary when they need to find money for the top tier there always seems to be money available but for the people on the ground who are really the backbone of our health service the money never seems to be available somebody else wants to know is there, is there not a discussion to be held for all of these sections 39 workers and all of the different organisations and the services that they're not fully absorbed by the HSC. Yeah, and I've never heard that conversation, but it, it certainly is one that if they had, if they were all under the HSC, even though they're paid, they're funded by the HSC, it's like, because I know people scratch their heads and don't fully understand how can, you know, are they not work, HSC workers? They're not. The funding comes from the HSC, but then they work for the individual groups that we mentioned, like Co-Action in West Cork, the Irish Wheelchair Association, Association, um, St Luke's Nursing Home, whichever the, the 17 that are going out, they're funded by the HSE, uh, but they're not direct workers of the HSE. And then someone else says, Patricia, shouldn't 
You have Deputy Michael Moynihan or some other government TD talking about the strike tomorrow. We actually, uh, you're ahead... You're ahead of also we're ahead of you. I'm not too sure. <laughs> but we already have Michael Moynihan booked in. He's going to be joining us tomorrow. Michael will have a lot to say on this because, of course, he's also the head of the, he's the chair of the Disability Matters, that uh, Aractus, uh committee. He's the head of that as well. And, and he's very strong on disability uh, issues. So I'll be interested to hear from Michael. But unfortunately, I think we're going to be talking to him on the day that the strike has started. I still can't believe that there isn't some kind of negotiation going on today to get this sorted and and, and it, um, the strike action suspended completely or withdrawn tomorrow but as of now it is going ahead. 0818103103 We were speaking about priests in the last hour and the lack thereof. Eddie in Bandon says in this day and age uh, surely we don't need seven years for somebody to be in college to train to become a priest. They're in college learning about theology. They need to reform the whole thing in the way we tra- train priests. So if somebody wants to be a priest at the end of the day, it is a vocation. Do they really need to be learning everything about theology that can take up to seven years of a study? A lot of church rules are based on canon law anyway uh, and are nothing to do with God. So they either need to change the way we train uh, priests or they'll go down the hole they're in at uh, the moment. Well, I, I don't know if it's even down to training because even if it was just down to training and lessening the years that they spend in college, listening to Father Tim talk about some diocese, they have no young men in training uh, to be priests. I think the whole conversation has to open up about allowing women priests or allowing priests to marry because remember, there are a number of people who trained and were priests and then they fell in love with a woman and they got married or a partner and they got married and they are no longer allowed to be priests. So there's another cohort that they could tap into. And I think many of them would probably dearly love to still be priests. But just because they fell in love, they had to leave uh, their pa- parish and their diocese. So I think we just need to open it up completely if the Catholic Church wants to continue. Eleanor and Carrie Galine says, my idea in all of this, and I'm sure others have said this before, I feel one of the main problems is celibacy. I would be off the belief. I'm of the belief that if they removed the celibacy rule, there would be more comfort for priests. I think this is holding up a lot of people from actually joining the priest. The Church of Ireland allow for married priests, but why not the Catholic Church? 0818103103. And then looking for your thoughts um, upping the age on which recruits can go into Angarda Siakona. This was kicked off by John, who is unsure of increasing the Garda uh, age because he feels if you've got men and women in their 50s and 60s as members of Angarda Siakona, the example he used, would they be able to run after an 18-year-old Scott that had done something? Would they have the, would they be fit enough? And even though I did say there are many, many people in the 50s and 60s who are very fit indeed. And Michael says he certainly agrees with upping the age limit for the Gardaí. It would bring experience and stability to the force. They would also have a very different outlook on life and would be able to help the younger recruits by bringing more stability and guidance on everyday affairs. He reckons it would be a massive boost to the Gardaí overall and he actually feels it should have happened years ago. Now Gardaí themselves rank and file Gardaí seemingly are baffled by the decision to raise the age uh, to uh, 50. 
And there's one saying, described it as scraping the bottom of the barrel. Now, the current trainee age, if you want to be a member in Garda Siakona today, you have to be under 35. But it is, it is looking like that the, the government is going to push the, to push the age uh, limit. And they're doing it to try to get more people to sign up to become members of Angarda Siakona. The Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, is also in discussions, by the way, with raising the Garda recruitment age. At the, at the moment, a Garda has to leave at 60. They're talking about raising that. Now, they're not saying by how much. But the GRA president, Brendan O'Connor, was speaking in the Irish Daily Mail today. He says that most uh, likely there won't be enough people near the age of 50 who would be interested in joining the force, particularly at the beginner level. He said the GRA is happy to see any initiative that has the potential to attract suitable candidates to Angar the Siakona that might help reduce the gap between recruitment targets and what's actually been achieved. But he says we're not convinced that there is a significant pool of people in the upper age groups uh, of those now eligible who would find the terms and conditions desirable. He added that the GRA does not see the plan as a realistic solution to the crisis that they have both in recruitment and in retention. He said the Garda forces should instead be on retaining the ones who are already trained and experienced. He said addressing the issues that are pushing people out. He said that is where the efforts need to be concentrated on. He said there's no doubt that there may be some excellent candidates who would bring a lot to the organisation up to the age of 50. But he said I would be very surprised if there is a significant number of people who would replace those at the same age who are actually leaving the organisation. He said no one in there, oh, this is one retired Donegal sergeant, a guy by the name of uh, Christy Callaghan, he said nobody in their right minds would want to join the police force at 50 years of age when most Gardaí are actually retiring at that age unless they're desperate for a bit of excitement or for something to do. Putting themselves in harm's way are dealing with ever-increasing bureaucratic oversight or incessant investigation by uh, GSOC or other internal Gardaí units. He said whoever thought that this was a good idea including reducing fitness standards so as to accommodate near-pensionable recruits, shows they have no idea of the concept of what it is to be a member of the police force. And I think he did make, that that retired sergeant did make a good point. He says it can take between 10 and 15 years as a member of the force to equip yourself with the knowledge and the understanding of how to properly conduct investigations and to have a better understanding of the legislation changes in criminal law and case law. Uh, so, you know, asking somebody to come in at 50 and it could take them 10, 15 years to really get the skill set that they need. You know, it's it's basically, he's saying it's, it's uh, too late. But Helen McEntee is adamant. She said the decision is an acknowledgement that people are now living longer. We accept that. And that many are changing careers later in life. She says there are many people above the age of 35 who would love to become a member and she wants to make sure that that is available for them uh, now. But uh, and in fairness to her, as Minister for Justice, they have to do something. There are almost 900 fewer Gardaí 
patrolling the streets today compared to just three years ago with the force hit by a record number of resignations this year. Now this year so far a total of 114 officers have left. Now these are resigning, these aren't people retiring, these are people who just said not had enough, can't do it uh, anymore. So 114 have gone since December of last year and 104 of those were frontline uh, officers. That figure has already surpassed the total number of resignations that was seen over the entirety of last year and is expected this year at least a new record. They reckon about 150 officers will have left by the end of the year. So they have to do something on retaining as well. And I think the GRA are right. You know, if you're going to put your focus anywhere, focus straight away and put intense uh, focus into looking at the Gardaí that you have on the beach, the ones that are trained um, and in order to retain them because they are the ones with the skill set. Uh, 0818 103 103 uh, John Paul taking your calls. You can uh, text or WhatsApp to 086 to uh, 103 103. Now I want to go to the phone lines and this is on funerals and lay ministers doing the funerals. The Father Tim was talking about. Mary uh, joins me uh, in Passage West. Um, good morning, Mary. Oh, sorry, I haven't got that. Um, good morning, Mary. Can you hear good me? Good morning, Patricia. You're welcome. Um, you want to pick up on somebody was asking our funeral teams, do they get paid? No, they don't. And we don't mind that because we're totally voluntary. Oh, and yes. would you get a donation? Would the family like to give you something? Um, well, no, we would rather not take it. Oh. Um, we would rather, once ever I got a donation and I was insisting give it back and the family refused to take it. But um, the uh, no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't want to take it either because if you start that, then you'd have other people maybe not wanting you to say the prayers because they might not be able to afford it yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bad so people, we don't yeah. accept donations, really. How long have you been part of a funeral team? I'm hopeless with time, okay. but I've been part of a funeral team for, we will say, five years. And talk to me about the role and, and what you actually do. Well, um, we would get a call to say that a person was dead now, if the family wanted us to come to the house, we would go to the house to say prayers. Or if we, if the house is private, we'd go to the funeral home and we would say the prayers in the funeral home. And this is only if a priest isn't available? Well, the priest would never be available now for the funeral home. Would they not? No, no, or the, or the homes either, really. The priest would go to the home when the person is pronounced dead. But... Um, and uh, but then the funeral team would take over from that. And you're able to just explain then what you're, you you do the removal prayers. We do the removal prayers. We go in and we we chat with the with the bereaved. Okay. And if there's anything in particular they want, um, we will indeed um, try and accommodate them. We would say the. Uh, Decade of the Rosary, we would say the Memorare, we would, you know, whatever prayers would be precious to them. And and would you do it inside in the church as well? Well, yes, we could do it in the church, but as a rule, the priest now um, would be after taking over in the church. But yes, we would. We do it in the church as well. Yeah. And did so, you did you mention deacons? Deacons, yes, I did. I said I have no problem with deacons. They're lovely men. Of course, there's no women, but they're okay. lovely men. 
but they're all as old as our priests. And who are, who are deacons? <coughs> they're, they're, they're not priests. They're not. They're lay people. Okay. But they're lay people. They're quite possibly married men. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe they're widowers, but I know that they accept married men. Um, and um, But they're trained. They have a couple of years training uh, before they become a deacon. And what are they able to perform? They can't say mass. They can't. They 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 can go into the church and they can do a Eucharistic service. They oh, can, can they? All yeah, right. they yeah. can do the gospel, which a lay person cannot read the gospel. Yeah. Um, as a rule, unless yeah. there's no priest there. Um, but the deacon can read the gospel. He can give the sermon on the gospel, but. He cannot do consecration. Okay, but the deacon then, if, I mean, because what we were talking about uh, with declining vocations and mm-hmm. older priests, and uh, and unfortunately we're losing many of our older priests, there could be a situation where there won't be a funeral mass, but the deacon could do everything. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Could, yeah. It could, the deacon didn't do everything except the consecration. Yeah. He cannot do the consecration. Now, there's no need in the wide earthly world why lay people can't do exactly the same thing. Yeah. And it, it's looking like that's what's going to happen, Mary. Well, it's looking like that if they leave loose of their grip, but they're holding on like um, they're holding on because they don't want to, in my opinion, and I'd say the church will be very cross with me for saying this, but I've been involved in the church and I know the church and um they don't want to lose power and they definitely don't want to lose power to women. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. the church have held huge power. Nobody can deny that. They've held the grip of the people. They've held huge power and they do not want to leave go. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's and, a, what, and what made you decide to sign up and get involved in the funeral teams? Well, I got... I, used to go to Mass every morning. I go to Mass every morning that is available to me. And um, But now the churches have all, you know, say here in Passage we have Mass on Sunday, we have Mass on Friday. But I can go to Rinniskiddy, uh, Monkstown, Shambly, the other days. But I mean, I mean, I would have to travel yeah. to those Masses. Um, but I... It was very keen, and I I was very keen in church. I'm very interested in the church, and um, I really wanted to be a part of the funeral teams when it opened up. But the, the thing is that um, I would be cross now. I don't go around with blindfolds on me. Okay. So I can see that they... they now, the majority of the priests are absolutely lovely, and the majority of the priests, I think, want lay people to be involved, but their hands are tied by the bishop's office. Yeah. And is it very satisfying work, Mary? And, 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 and sad work at times as well? Well, it is sad work. And, I mean, you'd have a young person's funeral, and it's very sad. Yeah. But, you know, it's lovely because you get the opportunity to speak with the bereaved, to sympathise with the bereaved, to let them know that you're absolutely sharing in a part of their pain. So, I mean, it is it is a lovely thing to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. It is. And you, you sound like a very compassionate person, which is exactly yeah. what somebody needs uh, at that dreadful time in their lives. Somebody says, yeah. uh, could you ask your guest, Mary, can a corpse stay in the church overnight? And if not, who made that rule? Uh, this is the, the when they stopped the removals the night before. Yeah. But, but but you can, I know you can ask, can't you? That the y- You can. You can say, don't ask, say I want. Yeah. That is the that is the answer. Um, but a corpse can stay in the church overnight. But they will tell you what you can and can't do. Yeah, because I know for a lot, particularly older people, they like the idea that oh, when their time comes, yeah, when their time comes, that they want to spend that last night on earth and they want to spend it in the house of God. Of course, yeah, because they, yeah. a lot of people. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I know a lot of elderly people myself who have gone to church every day of their life, yeah, especially yeah. ladies. Um, I know people with priests in the family who's gone to church every every day of their life. And it's hard uh, for them. It's hard it, for them. It is very hard for them. And it's a no, it's an absolute sin, I would go so far as to say, to prevent this. Yeah. All right, listen, Mary, loved uh, our chat. Thank you for that and keep up the good work that you're doing in Passage and thanks for joining us. Okay, Uh, bye-bye. Good morning. Three jobs. Now, an experienced stone mason is wanted for the River Stick and uh, West Cork areas, 087-6615377. Carpenter wanted for the College Road area of Cork City. Please apply with your CV to jobs at hamiltonfrench.com. A cafe supervisor is wanted to work in Mallow. Applicants must have at least two years' experience in a similar role, hospitality or retail. CVs, please, to Lucy 2000 at gmail.com. And AM Leak Detection are currently recruiting a technician for leak detection and plumbing repairs that's in the Cork area. Please apply with a CV and a cover letter to info at amltd 
www.thejobs.ie. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. cmig.ie. Now it isn't often that you hear locally elected politicians uh, calling on the HSE to shelve plans to build a 50-bed mental health facility on the grounds of a local hospital, in this case St. Stephen's Hospital. Well, Cork County Council has done just that by unanimously backing a call from independent councillor Liam Quaid, who of course is also a senior clinical uh, psychologist who works in the field. And Liam joins me. Good morning to you, Liam. Good morning, Patricia. I suppose, can you, can you explain to listeners why you're so against this particular mental health facility that the HSE is proposing? Absolutely. Um, so I previously worked as a clinical psychologist with the North Cork Mental Health Services and former uh, HSE colleagues of mine in, in, in those teams were part of efforts in the 1990s and the early noughties and actually on, on an ongoing basis, uh, to help transition long-stay patients of St. Stephen's Hospital to community residences that were set up uh, initially in the 90s in uh, Fermoy, Mallow and Canturk. And these new proposals for St. Stephen's, which are, they're, they're laid out in the HZ capsule plan, so they're not at, they're not at an adver- a very advanced stage yet, but they are being proposed. They're running directly counter to this ethos of community integration. And what this would involve is spending many millions of euro in mental health services that are inappropriately located, because we all know that St. Stephen's is an isolated hospital campus. It has very poor connectivity to the nearest village of Glenmire. Um, the grounds are impressive in their own way, but it's a very it's going to be a very medicalized setting, particularly because there's going to be a new elective hospital there. And I, I personally, um, and mental health policy would also say that there's no issue with acute mental health admissions in St. Stephen's into the long term because those admissions tend to be short term. However, it's directly at odds with a vision for change and actually the HSE's own model of care for this client group to um, to locate uh, long-stay um, mental health facilities on ground such as this. And it's also at odds with the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities because that that convention is very clear on the right of people with with severe mental health issues to live in their community. Yeah, we um, want to get. Yeah, we always and there's always been uh, the the move away from large, almost mm-hmm. institutionalized care. It's been proven that that doesn't work, and that's where a vision. That's what a vision for change is all about. Absolutely, and we've seen in North Cork a really um, stellar example of how that can be achieved. And North Cork um, HSE catchment is actually the only part of the whole Cork-Kerry um, uh, HSE area that, that is compliant with a vision for change. Now, the HSE's argument on this will be that they're going to build, um, you know, they're, they're going to build very modern, purpose-built, bungalow-style um, accommodation on the grounds of St. Stephen's. And, and that's fair enough, but I think we need to think about mental health services more broadly and where they're located. You know, it's not just about having a nice premises. It's about where... Um, those those premises are located. Don't don't have them in a, in an isolated spot. Absolutely, um, and and the only advantage that I can see to this is an advantage for the HSE, which would appear to be uh, the centralising of those staffing costs in one location. Because if you centralise these services, you're 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 going to reduce staffing costs. But that will mean 
that you'll be referring in people from not just the local um, HSE catchment, but, but well outside it. And it, it's going to take from uh, money, that, uh, a, a very limited uh, fund that, that could be spent developing community residences like we have in North Cork in towns such as Cove, Clannacilty, Yall, uh, Bandon, where currently no such services exist. Mm. And, and just, and just, just to get it. Yeah. Sorry. I, 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 just to get a sense of, of the, the kind of magnitude of funding that could be involved here. So we're talking about uh, 50 bed residents. Now it's it's broken down into into various bungalow um, compartments. But Carrigmore is um, is a service in Cork City. It's a, it's an essential service that the HSE is undertaking a renovation and extension to at the moment. And it, it's a very extensive um, project of works that that they're doing. And the, the costing for that in 2021 was 4 million. And m- more recently, um, in, in about uh, about two months ago, they gave an update in a parliamentary question response that it, it had now escalated to 14 million. Oh. And Carrickmore will accommodate 18 residents. And yeah. we're talking about a 50-bed um, facility. In and, and there's no costing on it as of yet that you can find? There's no costing. There's no costing. <clears> but you can be guaranteed that if this goes ahead, the chances of ever developing community residences, as as we currently have in North Cork, in those towns that I mentioned, is, is just going to be you know completely far fetched. Particularly, yeah. And the fear will the, be the, the that the fear will be that they'll come back and say, "Oh, we've spent all the money on this unit in in St Stephen's." Absolutely, and I mean the health budget is under unprecedented strain at the moment. Um, so I think it, it will it will make any any development of services like that you know, off limits for a very long time. Okay. And is is the evidence there, Liam, that if a patient lives or, or tends a unit in their locality, it is better for their recovery? Oh, absolutely. And I think you, you saw that um, kind of, you know, painted in very vivid terms when you spoke to family members of uh, people, um, of residents from the owner Centre, when they described, um, you know, their relatives' transformation from um, the, the life that they had prior to placement in Onakura, be it in institutional care in Our Ladies or living more precariously in the community. Um, and if you talk to any clinician who, who works in this area, they will tell you all that the same thing. has to be the way that you go. Okay, actually, what, what is the latest on, on Onakura Centre? How many residents are still left there? Well, believe it or not, there are six residents six. remaining, um, two years on from when the, the service was, was due to close. Um, so the HSC have acquired a property uh, for three residents and in, in Middleton, and that's obviously welcome, um, but it's, it's a fraction of what's needed. They, they have told us that they're pursuing the, the purchase of another property for the, route, for the other three residents. And they have also committed on paper to building a 10-bed service on the grounds of Onakura, which sounds, it sounds amazing. It sounds like an amazing breakthrough, and it has to be said that this w- would not have happened without our campaign because the the original plan was just to close Onakura and disperse the residents and not not uh, not replace those services in Middleton or in East Cork. Um, but the HC have told us they will commence building the new service on the Onakura site in quarter one of next year. Great. But uh, they they have told us that in tandem with telling us they have no capital funding secured. And as such, they have no plans submitted to the local authority. So this, this, is, this isn't a, a realistic time frame. And they have also declined to meet myself and Nasa Horrigan, um, who we contacted them back in May and I followed up more recently. And we, we actually um, found it easier to get a meeting with Bernard Gloucester, 
um, than with than with local management to discuss these plans. Okay. So All, very, right. Um, All right. That, Listen, and a, any response from the HSC to the letter from Cork County Council? No, because no. it's gone to a particular um, committee of the HSE board and they meet periodically. They meet, they meet, I think, about every two months. So I think it, it will be uh, discussed at their next meeting. OK. All right. Um, Keep us informed on that, um, Liam. But in the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is uh, Councillor Liam uh, Quaid, 0818-103-103. On the water mains, this is the water outage this morning. We had somebody texting in about Sally Park in Liscarroll and they had no water this morning. We got on to Ishka Air and the mains repair works Okay, there's mains repair works going on. It's uh, affecting supply to the Scar and surrounding areas until four o'clock today. So there, that's a mains repair work. I don't know if that was a burst pipe or whether it was planned uh, repairs, but that's the reason for the water outage in Liscarroll. And we've also had some calls in from Bantir. So we got on to Ishgarin about Bantir. They must be sick of hearing from us. They, they are there. That was a burst water main there. It's causing display. Um, supply disruptions to Fursey Terrace in Bantir and the surrounding areas again about four o'clock today they'll have that sorted and in uh, Bantry there was another burst water main and that is affecting supplies to Bantry and surrounding areas and they're working to sort that out as well so the guys and gals at Ishgaran are busy today C103 Now my next guest is a very dedicated collector of GAA sports programmes and uh, Dan Cronin from McCroom joins me to discuss his passion and also to put out a plea to help him complete his extensive collection. Good morning to you, Dan. Hi, Patricia. How are you? I'm I'm very well and thank you for taking our call. I suppose let's start at the beginning. Do you remember your first ever programme and how this whole collection of GAA programmes came about? Well, I suppose I was was always interested in GAA. I suppose I came from a GAA house. My father was secretary of a Kennedy GAA club in the 40s and the early 50s. So I suppose long before I was Thought of GA was in my in my blood, so I suppose I've always been a collector. I suppose because the fa- my father would have had programs, nothing got thrown away <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose it was just a case of building from there. I know the first program I probably kept myself. I was about probably about ten. I'd say we went to uh, McCroom versus Castlehaven match in Dunmanway, and I think I would have that was possibly the first match I can remember keeping. So that was eighty. And do you still still have all your dad's GAA items that he collected over the years? Well, he wouldn't, yeah, he wouldn't have had much. What I do have belong to him is his minutes and his secretary's reports and stuff from the the late 40s and in in that club at the time in Canada, there was no treasure. So I have the treasurer's reports and stuff that he made up in the 47, 48, 49. So I'd have... I'd have that stuff as well, yeah. Do you know, as I say, and to be fair to him, he never threw anything away either. Yeah, like, so, yeah. Um, I suppose it's, a, it's in the blood, as they say. <laughs> in total, how many items do you think you have? Um, I suppose, could I have five or six thousand? <sighs> how do you how, how do you store them all? Oh, there are, um, I suppose, I'm looking that I have a very patient partner for a start. Okay, yeah, that helps. Because I think she... She probably walks into the room and visions, you know, instead of an All Ireland final program, if I had a Gucci bag up there, now that would look far better. But look, in fairness, she they're all up in shelves. I haven't well organised and well okay. well put up. To be fair, so it is. Um, I put a bit of effort into kind of looking after them, and so that if 
Yeah, you're not. I think I think there, there's a huge difference between somebody who hoards and somebody who is a genuine collector. You're a genuine uh, collector. And I know there's one set of programmes that you have a real passion for. It's the Cork County Hurling and Football Finals. Is it since 1947? Yeah, well, I suppose the reason 47 is kind of picked as a year is that they're the two oldest that I, I possess. So I kind of just okay. got a kind of a, I suppose, a notion that I'd want to collect the full line of programmes from 47 to the, the current day. And at the minute, I reckon there's 166 games played between replays and everything. And I have 160 of them games. Oh, my God. This is, this is just finals now. That's incredible. And, um, and that's both in hurling and in football. And football, yeah. So you're missing, you're only, uh, I, what are the ones you're missing? They're the very so, early ones, I take it. Very early ones, unfortunately, yeah. So I'm missing... A 1949 hurling final between the Glen and Emmy Killy. Okay. I'd be missing a 1948 football final between Mill Street and St. Vincent's. So again, that's relatively local, but it seems to be evading me. And um, the 1949 game, which was, which was played between McCroom and Collins Barracks, there was a draw and a replay in that. Which is annoying. When does McCroom are playing in it? But anyway, yeah. And the 1951 game between Collins is again and St. Nick's. Um, since I started this gig, there was two other programs that I've been missing, and they've come about. So that was McCroom and Avondu and Carberry and Clannacilty a replay. But I've since got them. Like to be fair to people, so, so pe- people are very good about if they have them in handing them over. Uh, absolutely, because That's great. I, think, I think to be fair, I was I. I come across as a, a reasonably genuine collector. I'm not collecting them to put them up on eBay or put them up anywhere yeah. to, you yeah. know, they're, they're, being, they're being got for, for the right reasons. Well, I, I hope so anyway, like that they'll, they'll, they'll form a collection, like that will hopefully stand this test of time because I, I suppose I think I probably have the best collection of Cork County finals arguably in the country. I would say, I would absolutely say, I agree with you on that. And to flick through those programmes, do they make for very interesting reading, Dan? I do, because I suppose if you take, um, I put up, uh, I have a Facebook page and I put up a few pictures and we'll say one of the pictures I put up now was the middle page and there was a, a jeweller's in Oliver Funkel Street mm-hmm. and the the grandson of the, the jeweller's contacted me and you know, I said thank you for putting up the titles so there's a connection of, of shops that are long gone yeah. businesses that are long gone look you see maybe you see your grandfather playing on a team that you didn't think he played on all this kind of thing the like, programs are they're a great social history in that they, they with, with the ads that are long gone you're, you're, you're collecting everything together like it's mm. not just it's not just the team like there's the, the ads that are in them and whatever like so it's 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 a history of the area as much as anything, like yeah, and it's lovely to look back at those old ads, particularly as you say businesses now that are long since gone. Yeah, and is there a community of collectors here in Ireland? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, there'd be I'd say easily at least a hundred fairly dedicated um, program collectors. You know, there'd be with the, we have a WhatsApp group there. There's nine or ten of us on that, or maybe a bit more actually, up to fifteen. And they'd be all over the country, like. Um, but there's a lot of fairly serious. There's obviously a lot more serious collectors that I mightn't have fully met. But there would be, a, there'd be at least, I, I would say, at least a hundred that would be would class them as serious collectors, like yeah.
And what advice would you give to any young lad who, who might consider taking this up as a hobby? Is, I, mean, I mean, I take it you've got to look after the programmes. Well, first of all, you'll have to look after but I suppose one of the things is refuse nothing. Okay. Because someday somebody might give you the bag that's which like one day you might take the bag and there's one programme in it but the next day somebody gives you a bag with stuff that could be valuable, could be very rare. Like, I was lucky enough here in, in McCroom, one man in the town, he gave me two boxes of stuff very early on time in my collecting and that really put me on the, on the road and people are very good and as I say, take everything that you're offered if you want to be a collector because you just never know when you'll get the, the something that's what you're, what you're looking for and or is be organised as well so that you know right I have X and Y well I don't need X and Y then and you don't you don't buy stuff in doubles and triples which when I was starting out I did because mm. oh geez, I, I don't have that I was like a magpie I know really sh- shiny program oh I'll have that I end up with two of them <laughs> you know they're all good like okay, and, and what is your Facebook page if people want to find out more about what you're doing it's um, a Cork GA program and memorabilia collector Okay, Cork. Give me that again, Cork. Cork GA yeah. Program and Memorabilia Collector. Okay, and we have all of your contact details. You don't if need anybody can come up with any of those ones that, uh, that you're missing. Listen, it's a fascinating uh, collection. Stay, stay collecting, Dan. And thanks, thanks, for thanks for taking time out to talk to us. Not a bother. Thanks Good very much morning. for that. What's on your minds today? Jim and Tony Kilty was on. So he was reading in the papers over the weekend. The Netherlands have managed to close eight prisons since 2013 and it is due to what? Lack of criminals. Jim is now suggesting that when our politicians go off, you know the way they go overseas on St. Patrick's uh, weekend and they're off flying the flag uh, for Ireland, he says, and I don't know, do they, I'd have to check where they, the list of places they went to uh, last year. Do they go to Amsterdam? I don't know, do we, could we have an Irish population who live in Holland? I'd have to check and see. But Jim suggests if there is is anybody going, or particularly on the St. Patrick's weekend, would they ever check and find out what have they done in the Netherlands to reduce their criminal population to the point that they managed to close eight prisons. I'm going to have to look into that and see what what are the Netherlands doing so well because we could all learn from them. Thank you for that, uh, Jim. That's Jim in Clonakilty. Well, a different Jim was on talking about the HSE and the fact that we now know they've been given probably the biggest budget ever for for next year and they're already saying we're not going to have enough. It's simply not going to be enough. Uh, they're doing their best. Uh, well, they tell us they're doing their best with cost saving and the recruitment bar, uh, but they say they're going to run over budget and, you know, to actually say that before we even head into the year is very, very worrying. Uh, Jim says they need to do Something along the lines on what they're doing with RTE, you know, the deep dive investigation into RTE and where the money has been spent. They need to do something similar with the HSE and for once and for all, find out where exactly the money is going because it is billions upon billions of money. And get an, get a, could you get a breakdown of such a huge organisation? But yeah, uh, one wonders. It would make for interesting reading, Jim, uh, for sure. Thank you for that. Staying on the HSE and health uh, cuts, bearing in mind we've got the strike action from tomorrow, indefinite strike action um, across the voluntary and uh, community sector that's going to just affect so, so uh, many people. Uh, Finbar says, Patricia, I am very, very concerned on what is coming down the track with regards to the health budget and health budget cuts. Anyone waiting on a hospital waiting list, waiting to access treatment now, will they be left rotting on those waiting lists? People waiting to access cancer treatment operations, for etc. It is just so 
concerning that the health budget appears to be not sufficient to run the service in a country in in this country we have in this country we have grown as a society with so many people who have now come to this country and now call it home but we seem to have less and less money within our services i'm currently waiting to be improved for an injection treatment which has already been rejected once due to the cost of it by the HSC. My consultant has told me that he's reapplied but he's been very honest and he isn't holding out much hope that it will be approved. As she was, sorry, she consultant is she, she was told she has about 10 different patients like myself who need this drug to keep me well. The worry alone now of getting access to this drug is actually keeping me unwell. It is very upsetting. There are a lot of people will suffer greatly now who have chronic illnesses. I spoke to you before on the programme earlier this year that the influx of people coming into this country uh, would there be money set aside to run the health service uh, efficiently, particularly with all the extra uh, people? And now we know there isn't enough money. It is shocking when you think uh, in the year is 2023. Yeah, and remember, they're already talking about 2024 and not having uh, enough. It certainly is a worry. And I really do hope that your consultant manages to get you uh, that injection that you need. I mean, isn't that shocking in itself that here we have a consultant who has reviewed Finbar and 10 other patients and they all to say they need this treatment and obviously it's an expensive treatment but if it's an, a treatment that can keep people fit and well and living independently then you know there that's the type of treatment we need to be investing in keep us informed uh, Fimber and I hope you do manage to uh, stay well Michael in Bantry this is on mental health that we spoke about with Councillor Liam Quaid said mental health patients have to be integrated into the community but it has to be done carefully and it has to be done gradually in self-contained modern homes with home helps Meals on Wheels if that is what is needed to allow them to lead independent lives and Michael says remember it is okay to be it is okay not to be okay it is indeed uh, Michael well said and that's exactly what a vision for change within the HSE states it's moving people back out into the community and getting them out of institutions thank you for your text 0862 103 103 and Dan in Charleville has an example of he's calling it sizeflation uh, shrinkflation I think it's what it's referred to as Dan and he just came across it while out shopping this morning a box of Lions tea bags he's not a Barry's tea drinker he's a Lions tea drinker the box of tea bags 210 tea bags in the box for €8.50 and he says he doesn't know if that's up or down on what it was uh, originally and he said uh, last week €8.50 but there was 240 tea bags in the box in the same store. We're told all is good. The rate of inflation is dropping, but we're certainly not seeing that at the tills. Yeah, that's definitely shrinkflation. So you're paying the same amount and you see that's what that's where they catch people. You're seeing it and you're thinking, oh, it's remained the same price. Isn't that great? And 850 that's probably, I wonder what it was before prices started to rise. But you were getting 240 tea bags. Lo and behold, you're suddenly only getting 210. And you're thinking, am I drinking too much tea until you realise there's 30 less tea bags in the box? But the box would probably be the same size but you're saying this, paying the same price one that I came across 
um, earlier on in the year is the particular brand of toothpaste that we use in uh, our house. Firstly, it disappeared off the shelves and I was starting to panic, even though I always have kind of a little stockpile. And uh, it, but it just disappeared. Then it came back after a few weeks. And when it came back, it, 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 it was €2.39 and then it disappeared. And then it came back and it was €2.50. I was like, oh, that's OK, it's just gone up, you know, 11 cent. All, all is fine with the world. But it was only when I got it home and I had had another box in the cupboard in the bathroom and I went to put the extra one in. I always like to have two to have the reserves. So I said, that box is smaller. And then of course when I looked and saw the original one for 239 was 100 grams. It had gone down. It had shrunk shrinkflation to 75 grams and had gone up slightly which is really, really annoying and there's lots of evidence of that unfortunately. But you're right, we're told the rate of inflation is going down but when you're putting everything into your trolley, everything into your basket every week, it does seem like like everything is just getting more and more expensive. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Ballygarvin Community Association, their outdoor Christmas market uh, is taking stall bookings now. Now, the market will take place at Ballygarvin Community Centre on Sunday the 26th of November between 11 and 2. And to check stall availability, Elaine is your contact on 087 295 1063. Mallow Adult Learning Centre, they're located on the top floor of Mallow Parish Centre. Anyone who would like help with reading, writing or spelling or numeracy, you can contact them at 022 42642. The Marion Hall in Ballinhasic will hold a fundraising clothing collection tomorrow Tuesday and every Tuesday and Thursday night between 7pm and 8.30 and then on Saturdays from half two to four. And it is it started last week and it is running up to Thursday, the 19th of October. So tomorrow evening they will accept rewearable clothing, shoes, bags, towels, sheets, blankets, curtains and duvet covers, but no duvets and no pillows, please. And Ducas in Clonakilty Heritage will host best-selling popular author Michael Smith tomorrow evening at half past eight in the GAA a pavilion. Michael will speak on how monster-shaped Antarctic exploration with references to the incredible adventures of the remarkable men from Munster who discovered and explored the frozen continent of Antarctica. And from West Cork to North Cork, Mallow Field Club will host Sister Bernadette uh, Nopek speaking on the Mercy Sisters in the Crimean War. That's tomorrow evening at 8 and it's in the Social Services Hall in Mallow with admission €5. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Virgin Media News are to broadcast a series of special reports on Ireland's road fatalities as sadly the numbers continue to rise and just this weekend a total of five men have died in separate incidents on our roads Virgin Media News Southern Correspondent Paul Byrne uh, joins me Uh, Good afternoon to you Paul Good afternoon Patricia Uh, And you're welcome You're very much focusing on the families left behind following the death of a loved one in a traffic accident We are Patricia because um, I'm going to ask you there's 149 fatalities on the road so far this year. That's the number, the latest number. But I'm going to ask you a question. 
Can you recall the number given in June, July and August, Patricia? No, I sadly can't. And I I would have spoken about them probably lots of times on the programme. You would, and I would, and we all do. But in my mind, Patricia, we all go, oh God, that number, it's horrible. And it's forgotten about five minutes later, Patricia. I think the numbers just go in one ear and out the other. And I I don't think, they, they affect obviously one or two people. But not everybody is affected by it and they don't take it on board. So, I mean, I'm covering stories 25 years with Virgin. And I just said the other day, you know, it's happening weekend after weekend and day after day, carnage on the roads. And I just want to try and go out and talk to the emergency services, the people who have witnessed the carnage at first hand, to the people who have honestly have to pick up the pieces on the road, the guards who have to deliver the devastating news to families and to reach out to the families who've lost loved ones and talk about, to get them to talk about the pain and maybe somebody will honestly sit up and take heed. So we have spoken to the guards, the fire service, the the, the ambulance service and two mothers as well as um, St. Coleman's College in Formoy. And St. Coleman's College in Formoy, there's a teacher there called Claire McCarthy, and she's passionate about road safety. And at the moment, they devote, I think it's 40 minutes a week, to classes on road safety. But they're campaigning now at the moment to make it compuls- a compulsory part of the education system. And I believe they're dead right to do that, because road safety and the learning about it is as important as geography, history, mathematics, French, German, whatever the case may be. You're given a license to drive uh, or ride a motorbike at 16. You're given a a license to drive a car at 17 years of age, yet you can't vote or buy a drink until you're 18. So you have a license to to get onto a powerful machine behind the wheel of a, a lethal weapon. And... You know, the, the emergency services tell us the, the, the graphic information of what they witness. And two mothers in particular, we spoke to Patricia. One is um, Christine Donnelly. She's hails from Waterford, but she has spent a lot of time talking to the media here in Cork over the years. Her son was 24 years of age, himself and his friend, and two girls were heading to Cork Airport when the car they were travelling and was hit by a guy who was high on drink and drugs. And I'm not saying anything here that hasn't been said in court, so don't worry. The driver was jailed for five years. Brendan Donnelly and his friend, both of them were killed instantly in the crash. And the driver got five years and 15 years off the road. A couple of hours after the fatal crash, Brendan Donnelly's mother was in CUH identifying his body. And at Cork Airport at the same time, his name was being called out over the tannoy to board last passengers boarding the flight to Amsterdam. And that's where he should have been heading to. But he was on the slab in the morgue at CUH with his mum at his side. And, I, I always, and I've, I've spoken with Christine before. And you what, have. I, what always strikes me about that story, we've all gone away on holidays and that drive to the airport. And, you know, you're in the car. I've got the passport and you're thinking of everything. And there's that level of anticipation and excitement of this wonderful, you know, weekend, week away, whatever it is. And in the blink of an eye, their lives were taken away. And this Christine and, and the other families then left with this it's it's a lifetime sentence that they're left with they are and she spoke about you know um he was a single guy and every christmas since then there's an a, a, an empty chair at the christmas or at the the, the the table at christmas day there's the birthdays 
the songs that come on the radio, the smell of a cup of coffee, she said that always. He loved coffee, and every time she smells coffee, she thinks of him. So while he's unfortunately in a cemetery today, the pain never goes away from these people, and they're left with a broken heart. There's a void in their lives, and some people say time is a healer. Well, time certainly hasn't healed a lot of the people that we mentioned or that we met. And there's another young, a lovely lady, um, uh, Mary Coleman is her name. She's from <coughs> um, Dondoro, just outside Kinsale. And in 2001, her son, Connor, he was only 15 at the time, himself and his two friends, they were twin brothers, Gavin and Kean O'Sullivan, also 15. And the three of them were inseparable. In fact, known locally <clears throat> as the three twins. It's only Cork you'd get something like that. And they'd walk into a shop or into a, a anywhere and they say, oh, here are the three twins. They went everywhere together. And those three boys and their friend, Paul O'Donoghue, who was just 21 at the time, he was driving the car. They were Paul was returning a car to a rental uh, company in Cork Airport. And they crashed into another car with uh, an elderly couple. And the four friends, as well as the elderly couple, were all killed instantly. It happened just outside Ballinhasig in County Cork in 2001. And 22 years on, like Mrs. Coleman, the twins' father and mum and, and the parents of Paula Dunahoo, those boys should be working today, 35 and 40 years of age. They should be married with children. And M Mrs. Coleman, Mary Coleman, she should be, you know, doting on her grandchildren. She was denied that because these lives were, were taken in such a cruel fashion. And, you know, she said days after they were killed, what did she have to do? She had to go away and purchase a coffin. She had to go away and pick out a coffin. She had to go away and purchase a grave. No mother, no parent should bury their children. Absolutely. We hear that all the time. Absolutely. But that's, Absolutely. that's the reality um, and, and what, crashes. What are you hoping through this series, uh, Paul? What message are you hoping to get across to us, the viewers who will be watching these pieces? I think if one, we always hear, if one person benefits, if one person eases back on the accelerator, if one person does not go out and pick up the mobile phone while they're driving. If one person, a pedestrian, wears something reflective late at night, if a cyclist just lights up his or her bike, and again, you may do all those things. You may go home today and stick to the letter of the law while you're behind the wheel of the car. And you're, you think, I'm doing everything right. But remember, the motorist or the cyclist or the pedestrian coming to you mightn't, have been doing, mightn't be doing the same. And they might have just thrown caution to the wind. And all of a sudden, there's a bang, a wallop, and somebody is killed or somebody is maimed for life. Remember, we always hear of the fatalities. And we do hear a number about injured. But some people are left with life-altering yeah. injuries for the rest of their lives. They're, they're, they're paralysed from the neck down. They're in a wheelchair. They've lost limbs. It's devastating what's out there. And we've spoken to Dr. Jason Vanderbilt, who's up in, in West Cork Rapid Response, and he tells the story of going to road accidents and to see somebody dead behind the wheel with the mobile phone in their hand and somebody at the other end saying, Paul, Paul, are you there? Paul, are you there? Oh, my God. And oh, I my God. Said, I, said, I said recently to myself, you know, 
I, I report the facts, the figures. And I said, to me, like not all the time, but it, it doesn't mean a lot, I think, to some people. And all right, we have 149. I think that's the number to date and another weekend of carnage. But let me just tell you, 149, just say for argument's sake, that's the population, Patricia, of some of Ireland's rural villages. Mm. Imagine driving through some village and there isn't a sinner to be seen because they've all been killed. That's, you know, I, I know we're, we're talking about numbers and I'm saying it doesn't work, but that's the way I try to paint it, that it's the population of a village has been wiped out. Yeah. And I just said, I have something, I, I feel I had to, I, I just felt myself I had a, a part to play to try and do something because it doesn't seem to be working, campaigns after campaigns. And in fairness to the Road Safety Authority, they do some massive and fantastic hard-hitting campaigns. And I think that's the more of those, the better. And also, the penalties here for people who break the law, they're just a joke. I mean, I saw in Australia the other day, if you're uh, involved in a fatal crash because of drink and, dri- drink and drug driving, you're, you're brought to a scrapyard and you're made witness your car being crunched inside an... Um, uh, a car a cruncher, yeah, 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 and I and I saw uh, I, I posted up at the weekend the Gardaí stopping somebody and the guy no license, no tax, no insurance, um, and driving and, and I just thought, how long was he driving around before before he was eventually caught? Exactly, and I can tell you, I almost guarantee you, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of drivers on the road today who have been banned from driving. And are still driving. And they're, they're out there floating yeah. the law. Yeah, and Anne I mean, says... Christine, Christine Donnelly says to us, some of these people are just laughing at those who are making efforts to try and curb I know. the number of deaths on the road. Anne says, I never knew my dad. He was killed coming home from work by a drunk driver. I was only a baby at the time. All I have of my dad are photographs. I mean, that's just so sad. And actually, over the years, um, I've often interviewed Gardaí as they're about to retire, particularly any of the members who do the, the crime file with us every week. Um, yeah. And every single one of them, you know, when I ask, you know, what you know, will stand out, what, what do you remember most? They all talk about the worst part of the job is that knocking on the door and having to tell a family member that their loved one is is dead and all of them all of them have said it's something you never ever get over it's just okay the, your series is running um, it starts today doesn't it it does it starts in the news at half twelve but they'll be on the news as well on at half five and seven and seven okay um, it runs throughout the week Monday okay. through Friday okay we'll keep a lookout for it and just while, while I, I have you it would be remiss of me not to mention uh, the late Tina Satchwell because it's a, a case you have been following literally since uh, day yeah. one um, Richard was in court her husband was in court uh, in Cashel were you there in Cashel on Saturday? I was uh, he had been charged on Friday night in Cove Garda station and he arrived to Cashel at about 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. And um, the security was tight. Uh, lots and lots of members of the public there um, to try and see him uh, up close and personal as it was. He was led in by two detectives who gave evidence. One of them then gave evidence of charging him at Cove Garda Station. He sat throughout the hearing, didn't uh, say anything. He kept his head partially bowed, uh, adjusting his glasses uh, his his solicitor did sit alongside him and had a chat with him, probably just um, explaining the court process to him. Um, Sarah, uh, Sarah, his um, I can't think of her name. Sorry, no, his first cousin, Sarah Howard. Sorry, Sarah Howard was in court um, for the brief hearing. It lasted about four minutes. She was obviously visibly upset, 
and on occasions she could be seen looking over towards Satchwell, um, who just, as I said, didn't make any eye contact with anybody in the in the court. It lasted about four minutes. His solicitor, Eddie Burke, said uh, Satchwell is unemployed and that he would need and requested any medical attention that he may need while in custody. He also said, could he be housed on remand in court prison rather than Limerick? The judge said that was a matter for the prison service and uh, he is now on remand. He will be appearing again in court in Clamel tomorrow via video link and he will be up and down in the court services, in the courts for at least a year before there's a trial. Uh, Gardaí are now preparing the book of evidence. Um, there's a lot and lot of work putting a book of evidence together. Um, they've got 42 days to prepare that book. However, there's always extensions granted in, in a case. And I think um, it could be a year, possibly longer, before it actually goes before a judge and jury. Do we know how he's pleading? No, have no idea. No. I know people are, I, I will say this, and I, I can't, in court uh, the other day, when he was charged and cautioned at Cove Garda Station, he replied four words, guilty or not guilty, guilty. And that's simply a reply to the charge and caution. What he says when he's arraigned before a judge and jury has yet to be seen. Okay. And, and, you know, we don't know because, you know, there'll be a long road between now and the trial. And when he's arraigned, we'll only know what way, the, what way he'll plead. OK. And just very briefly, I've just spotted a text in when you were talking about that, the... Uh, the crash where the uh, six people were killed back in 1921, mm-hmm. uh, back in 2001. A listener has just said that elderly couple that you've just mentioned in the interview were my parents. God <gasps> help them. God help them. You see, and All they're right. carrying that pain for yeah. the rest of their life. Yeah, as well. absolutely. That, absolutely. You condolences. Know. Condolences behind, to like, that family. Behind every fatality, there's a grieving family. There's it has this massive knock on effect. And my condolences to that lady, 22 years on, I'm sure she's still hurting. Time yeah. is a, they say time is a healer for some people that we've spoken to, Patricia. Absolutely not. Never They're goes away. Broken to this day. All right. We will, uh, I, I won't say look forward because I know it's, it, but, but, it's, just, yeah. but it's, it's, it's certainly something we all need to watch. But I think have the tissues um, at the ready. Listen, Paul, well done, by the way. Mm. I, I think it's a, it's, it's a fantastic initiative. So well done to you on it. And as always, a uh, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for that. God bless. Thanks Thank for joining you. us. Uh, bye bye. That is Paul Byrne, who's Virgin Media News Southern correspondent. So keep a lookout for those reports every day this week on all the main bulletins on Virgin uh, Media News. 0818 103 103. Lines open. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. We're off to the Health Hub Times Square in Ballancolic where Annalise Drissel uh, joins me. Good afternoon to you, Annalise. Good afternoon. And you're very welcome. Starting with a question in from Tina. What is the best thing to prevent reoccurring kidney infections? So generally the best thing to prevent is to take something called D-mannose every day. It's a sugar, uh, but it helps to sort of prevent the spike formation of the bacteria so that they can kind of stick onto the cells of the bladder and the urinary tract and it kind of flushes them through. So you can take it either as a powder or as a tablet, a thousand milligrams a day, ideally for prevention. 
Um, and it really does work. It's absolutely fantastic. I think it's also very good to use for treatment. So if you do feel something coming on, you could increase it to uh, one 1,000 milligrams every three to four hours, Patricia, and keep it flushing through. And what else is fantastic as well, and we sell a lot, and actually have a lot of customers who are antibiotic-free for years, um, also by adding cranbiotics, uh, which is a combination of cranberry extract and probiotics. So the good bacteria also play a role in preventing um, you know, the uh, infection-causing bacteria from being able to kind of multiply and cause infection. So if, you're, if you've had an awful lot of kidney infections or if you're really prone to them, I would take one capsule of those a day as well. Okay, Marion describes herself as a perfectly healthy 50-year-old woman, quite active, is on HRT, but she's finding she's getting a bit stiff. She's just wondering, could she take anything? Um, what would you suggest? Because she doesn't want to go on any medic- any more, any other medications from the doctor. Yeah. Is there anything from a holistic point of view you could suggest? So I'm not sure if it's her joints are stiff or if her muscles are stiff. So if it was muscle, magnesium is very good. Um, and Viridian do a nice high potency magnesium. It's 300 milligrams per capsule. So you could start on something like that. That's very good for stiff and sore muscles or if people have restless legs. Um, but if it's stiff joints, definitely it's good to start now because you want to start before the damage is actually done because once the wear and tear is too far gone, there's very little you can do then to repair the cartilage in the joint. So like everything else, natural medicine is ideally used for prevention rather than cure. So with stiff joints, what I'd be recommending is something that would support the joint that has a nice uh, bit of natural anti-inflammatory in there as well. So we get very good feedback on two particular supplements. One of them is by a company called One Nutrition and it's called Joint Support. And the other one is by a company called GAL and it's called UC2 Cartilage. And both of those have a combination of stuff that support the cartilage formation, but also nice natural anti-inflammatories. So you could start on those. And another one that people often say helps fantastically with their joints is fish oil supplement. And what I love about a fish oil supplement, Patricia, is I don't think any of us really probably eat enough oily fish. And particularly because of the mercury poisoning, people could be afraid of, you know, at the most we can really eat it just three times a week anyway. So to take a fish oil supplement is a fantastic natural anti-inflammatory. So it works for the joints, but it also works everywhere else. So it helps keep your good cholesterol up. It's an anti-inflammatory for the heart. Keeps your blood lovely and thin and flowing nicely, less likely to clot. It supports the tissue, the fatty tissue of the brain health. So I definitely think it plays a role in cognitive decline in the long term and prevention of that. So for many, many reasons, the fish oil will do a lot of different jobs. So that could be another nice option too. And how much fish oil and what type of fish oil are you talking? Um, So I think like what you're looking for really is as an anti-inflammatory omega-3 fish oil. um, They're made up of EPA and DHA. DHA is wonderful for brain and skin and EPA is the anti-inflammatory side of it. So if you could get one that has a nice balance of both. The one that I love and that I take myself is is called Unocardio and it's just one capsule a day and I get my vitamin D in with that as well. Um, and it's such a high strength one, Patricia, I'd often maybe skip it every other day okay. because, um, and certainly don't need to take it when you're eating, eating fish. But a good cod liver oil, make sure that it, um, you know, that it has been processed properly so that there is none of the heavy metals in there. So go for a fairly good quality one. And if you're willing to take it off the spoon, you'll get great value for money. Oh. I, yeah, Nordic, <laughs> Nordic Naturals do um, do a few. 
Patricia, I'm sure you had cod liver oil when I you did, were a kid. Yeah, I think that's what's turned me off it. Oh, I can yeah. still smell it. Yeah, no, it's pretty disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Get back get it down, into it. Get it down quick. Okay, um, a lot of calls in, John Paul tells me about this because COVID is back and it's, I've heard of more people uh, getting COVID uh, and it's the, it's the one, people got COVID, they weren't very unwell uh, with it, but now it's afterwards, the energy levels. Any advice on uh, dealing with low energy levels after a bout of COVID? Yeah, and um, very common, Patricia, that post-viral fatigue. And th- that's what I always think about COVID as being the strangest um, virus that I've really ever seen, uh, is that people who normally post-viral fatigue would have only happened to people who were very, very, very unwell with a flu or glandular fever or other type of virus. But people who have even a mild COVID tend to get that fatigue afterwards. So it's a very unusual virus. So to support it, there'd be a couple of things. The source of life gold, unfortunately, is not available until the end of the month because there was production issues. And um, so that's not an option at the moment. But that was a very good tonic because it had some ginseng in there. So you could get ginseng separately and take that. It is great for kind of a natural burst of energy, but it's not good to do too much too soon either, Patricia. I do think you need to take um, take a rest. So instead of the uh, Source of Life Gold, I've been recommending uh, a, a supplement called Vibracell, V-I-B-R-A-C-E-L-L. It's by a company called Nuvistas. And I've been getting very good feedback on that. It's a lovely combination of um, of homeopathic and vitamins, minerals, and lots of natural stuff as well. So that could be a good one to try. And then even Baraka, I think, can be good to give you a bit of a boost in the afternoon. That's literally just vitamin B. So you could take a B complex at the very most basic level. Um, And make sure you support your immune system afterwards because it's the virus that's still there is making you feel tired. So if you take even uh, a vitamin uh, C, zinc, and a vitamin D, just to make sure you're supporting uh, your immune system. And of course, my favorite is the olive leaf extract. I always feel it gets me that extra 20%, that last 20% better. So you could add that into the mix as well. Okay, here's an unusual one. My son sneezes about 20 times every morning. It happens at home. He's now going to college in Limerick and it's happening in Limerick as well. So he's obviously um, late teens, early 20s. What would cause a bout of sneezing just in the morning and then it disappears? Yeah, I don't know, Patricia, what that would be. But I would say that it doesn't, if it doesn't cause them any distress, like some people will sneeze when they see the sunlight. Um, you know, have you have you noticed that some people when they go out yeah, in bright yeah. light, they start sneezing? So maybe it's something like when he wakes up in the window, the, the, the curtains are opened, it's the bright light that triggers it. But I think unless it's actually doing him any harm. The other thing, it could be some type of an allergy. But then if that was the case, he would have been sneezing throughout the night as well. So um, I think unless he's, you know, it's hurting him in any way or unless there's an awful lot of mucus, I think it's probably just a harmless reaction to waking up in the morning. Okay, (laughs) And you know the treatments that you gave for the reoccurring kidney infections. The listener wants to know, can they be used for children? Her daughter is four and gets a lot of kidney infections. Could they be used for children? 100% can be used for children. And you can get the powder and the cranbiotics actually as a capsule so you can open that. So it's very, very easy to hide it in a, a yogurt in the morning and just get it into them. Yeah, all I can say to that listener is um, I was a martyr for kidney infections as a child, but I grew out of it, thankfully. So hopefully she will. Uh, and Kay, have we time for this? We do Kay in County Limerick. Question for Annalise. Is it advisable to take CQ10 and lysine granules with a 10 milligram statin? Okay, so that is actually very good to take, both of those. And 
The statin drug stops the production of cholesterol in the liver by a particular pathway by stopping an enzyme that converts saturated fat into cholesterol. But that pathway also makes a very important vitamin called coenzyme Q10, and it's an integral part of our energy pathways. So people can become deficient in this. And that's why people get the side effects of the statin, like the slow, uh, the sore muscles and the muscle fatigue and the memory, you know, the short-term memory problems and um, and feeling fatigued. That's because they're probably deficient in coenzyme Q10. So I think everybody just because it's, you know, if you think about the biggest muscle in the body being the heart, you kind of want it to be healthy. You don't want it to be deficient in Q10, which is important for the energy pathways that fuel the heart. I think everyone on a statin should be taking coenzyme Q10. Mm. And then lecithin is um, what is very good to help form our bile. And bile is what we need to be able to get rid of old cholesterol and unused cholesterol out of the body. So our body is constantly bringing cholesterol around to various different sites in the body where it's needed and then collecting old cholesterol and bringing it back to the liver to be recycled and got rid of. So the lecithin helps your bile to get rid of cholesterol after the liver. So good to take as well. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks for that. Have a lovely week. We'll chat next Monday. Thanks, Thanks, Annalise. And Annalise will put up everything that she mentioned on her website this afternoon, uh, healthhubstore.com. Eileen in Formoy says, my father was killed on a bike in 1951 by a drunk driver. Uh, It occurred on the old Mallow Road and to this day it still affects our family, which is exactly the point that... um, uh, that Paul was making. Uh, drink driving is a big issue. It needs to be stamped out. It does indeed. Uh, Hannah suggests a solution. Could it be put speed limiters on cars? Would that uh, help? Um, OK, that's where we leave it for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Rich is with you for the afternoon. Talk to you tomorrow. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.